Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger and the Mason City Globe Gazette for Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story from the Mason City Globe Gazette. It's entitled, Food Banks Brace for Summer. Abandonment of Summer EBT May Strain Resources. It's written by Robin McClelland of the Globe Gazette. The state's decision to turn down more than $20 million in federal food aid for low-income children during the summer could put a strain on local agencies fighting food insecurity. Ozzie Ole of Hawkeye Harvest Food Bank said the choice by the state to not participate in the program could lead to increased demand once school lets out. We've already seen some clients, excuse me, we've already seen more clients who are in need due to inflation, supply chain issues, and even shrink inflation. A box that used to hold 58 ounces may only be 50 ounces now, and that doesn't go as far, he said. Historically, we see an increase in demand in summer, and I suspect it will be dramatic this year. The Iowa Departments of Education and Health and Human Services notified the U.S. Department of Agriculture last week that Iowa will not participate in a program that provides additional food assistance for children during the summer. The Summer Electronic Benefits Transfer Program sends EBT cards to children who are eligible for free or reduced breakfast and lunch. Each child receives $40 per month that school is not in session to purchase SNAP-eligible foods at participating locations. Federal COVID-era cash benefit programs are not sustainable and don't provide long-term solutions for the issues impacting children and families. An EBT card does nothing to promote nutrition at a time when childhood obesity has become an epidemic, Governor Kim Reynolds said in a statement. She added, if the Biden administration and Congress want to make a real commitment to family well-being, they should invest in already existing programs and infrastructure at the state level and give us the flexibility to tailor them to our state's needs. States that participate in the federal program are required to cover half of the administrative costs, which the state estimated would cost $2.2 million in Iowa, the news release said. Family advocates decried the decision and questioned the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services' estimate of costs for running the three-month program. It's a huge loss for Iowa, said State Senator Sarah Trone Garriott, a Democrat from West Des Moines. If we're talking 20-some million dollars coming from the federal government, I don't think the state is going to be matching that. They are just going to be leaving it to the charities to make up the difference. Trone Garriott said she did not know how HHS determined the state's share of administrative costs for the program would be $2.2 million. It costs our state $2.2 million in shared administrative costs to run the entire SNAP program for the whole state, she said. Officials in nearby Nebraska also announced last week that state will not participate in summer EBT, which they said would cost Nebraska about $300,000 annually in administrative costs, the Lincoln Journal-Star reported. The summer EBT program is similar to the pandemic EBT program that operated throughout the federally declared pandemic. However, the summer EBT program is a permanent U.S. Department of Agriculture program designed specifically to support child nutrition throughout the summer months. In the state's remarks regarding the summer EBT program, it said that they plan on enhancing and expanding already existing childhood nutrition programs instead of participating in the program in 2024. 
Two programs the state is referring to are the Summer Food Services Program and Seamless Summer Option Program. Both provide food assistance to children and families during the summer in Iowa and are funded by the USDA and administered by the State Department of Education. In previous years, more than 500 meal sites have been established in low-income areas throughout the state. The Seamless Summer Option allows school districts to continue serving meals to children, and the Summer Food Service Program allows for congregate meals at approved locations when enrichment activities are included. The Food Bank of Iowa partners with more than 700 agencies in 55 counties in Iowa. Many agencies purchase food from the organization at reasonable prices to create meals for those in need or distributed to individuals for home preparation. Hawkeye Harvest partners with Food Bank of Iowa, said Ole. Here, we allow for clients to come in and make their choices from what's available. On the subject of obesity, I think it can be difficult for families to access fresh foods without options like EBT. We have worked to develop partnerships with gardeners and other producers to keep fresh fruits and vegetables on hand throughout the growing season for families. Ole also pointed out that students who receive free and reduced breakfast and lunch get two of their three meals a day at school. It's hard to imagine being a productive kid on just one meal a day, he said. Jordan Vernoy has worked with Iowa food banks and service agencies for more than two decades. What we saw during the pandemic is that distribution sites for meals did very well. The challenge is that in very rural areas, we're asking low-income families to get kids to those sites during what are typically working hours. By putting funds on an EBT card, we put that money directly in their hands to shop for what they need when they need it, Vernoy said. In 2019, the state launched the Double Up Food Bucks program, which gives users $1 to spend on fresh produce and a separate card for every dollar of produce spent on their EBT card, thereby doubling up their produce purchasing power. The Double Up Food Bucks program is designed to encourage healthy eating and support farmers and farmers markets while encouraging retailers to stock appropriately healthy food. The program benefits all EBT holders, including children who would have received the summer EBT. The other story from the front page of the Globe Gazette today is entitled, New State Law Will Drain Decades-Old Library Levy in Mason City. It's written by Alexander Schmidt of the Globe Gazette. Starting in July, Mason City voters will no longer have a direct impact on the funding of the Mason City Public Library due to changes in state property tax law enacted at the end of 2023 Iowa legislative session. Voters in Mason City first approved a tax levy to establish a free public library in 1891. Since then, the city successfully employed additional levies to operate and expand the library's services, including for the construction of the library's current building at 2nd Street Northeast and Pennsylvania Avenue. Currently, the library is subsidized by a special levy first approved in 1990 that generates 14 cents of funding per $1,000 of assessed valuation used for the purchase of library materials. Mary Mark Walter, library director, said this mandate from the voters indicates the community wants to see the library flourish and has helped it do so. In fiscal year 2024, this levy is expected to generate $175,412. 
the library's nonprofit foundation, which bridges the gap between municipal tax dollars and the cost of library services with charitable donations and investment income, reported a net income in FY 2022 of $13,055. We purchase over 6,000 pieces of new material per year, said Mark Walter. It is going to be a lot to make up, especially if we want to continue to provide our top-tier library services to the region. Under the provisions in House File 718, this special levy funding would likely be either significantly reduced or eliminated as city levy rates are capped at $8.10 per $1,000 in taxable value, and 15 of the state's individual levies are combined into a single levy. State lawmakers who passed the bill in the last hours of the legislative session anticipate the legislation to generate $100 million in new tax revenue statewide. The loss of local control over these funds has Mark Walter concerned enough to make a public plea for support. In a December 6th post on the Mason City Public Library's Facebook page, the library encouraged patrons to contact their legislators and encouraged them to join other members of the Iowa House and Senate to amend HF 718 and reinstate the local levy for libraries across the state of Iowa. The Mason City Council in February approved maximum property tax dollars for the affected tax levies for fiscal year 2024 to not exceed $10.94, a decrease of 1.22% from the maximum property tax dollars requested for fiscal year 2023. With funding set to expire in the year 2029, Mason City's general budget included an incremental reduction of the 1990 library levy. Mark Walter said, while she is encouraged that the city has shown support, she knows the red tape caused by the bill will eventually force the city to prioritize funding for services like street repair, emergency management, and other costs. Next year, we'll only have 75% available. The years after, we'll have 50%, then 25%, and it's gone, said Mark Walter. The library's stance against the new state law is backed by the Iowa Library Association, which said in a statement that the bill stripped Iowans of their right to grow library services through local elections. In addition, Iowa communities were stripped of the budget they were legally pledged and no longer have guaranteed funding. Other communities no longer have the ability to locally petition for a library-directed levy. Sam Helmick is the Community and Access Services Coordinator for the Iowa City Public Library, as well as president of the library, Iowa Library Association. Helmick said that eliminating the option for communities to create future library levies will significantly diminish the impact and capacity of Iowa libraries. Mason City Christmas Tree Collection set for January 10th. According to a press release from Mason City Hall, Christmas trees will be collected on one date, Wednesday, January 10th. The trees should be placed at the curbside in front of the house prior to 7 a.m. If the tree is over six feet tall, please cut in half before placing on curb. Tree stands, nails, or metal fasteners, wire, and any material items must be removed from the tree. Do not place the tree in a bag. Roping or wreaths that contain wire must be placed in regular garbage. 
In the event there is snow accumulation prior to January 10th, residents are asked to make sure trees are not buried in the snow if they have been sitting on the curb. Those with questions may contact the Sanitation Division at area code 641-421-3691. And four city woman wins big on lottery scratch ticket. A northern Iowa woman who won $25,000 said she initially thought her prize was much smaller. According to a press release, Tanisha Valiant of Forest City won the sixth top prize in the Iowa Lottery's Extra Bingo Scratch Game. She purchased her winning ticket at Casey's 106 U.S. Highway 69 South in Forest City and scratched it when she got home. Valiant noticed she'd completed four corners on her ticket for a $500 prize, but she missed the fact that she also completed an X, signifying that she'd won one of the game's top prizes. I told my girlfriend, am I dreaming? I've got four corners, Valiant told Iowa Lottery officials on Thursday as she claimed her prize at the Lottery's Mason City Regional Office. And she's like, no, baby, you've got the X. You won the big prize. Valiant said she plans to use the winnings to pay bills and pay off some of her car loan. I'm still in shock, but blessed, she said. Next, arraignment set January 16th for Mason City murder suspect. This is written by Lisa Groet of the Globe Gazette. After an initial appearance in court last week, Frederick Joseph Olson, the man accused of murdering a Mason City man in December, is scheduled to be arraigned on January 16th. Olson, age 51 of Mason City, is being held on $1 million bail in the Cerro Gordo County Jail on a felony charge of predetermined murder in connection with the killing of 63-year-old Leroy Leonard White. According to a press release from the Mason City Police Department, officers responded to a welfare check around 1.26 p.m. December 19th at the residence at 1916 South Grover Avenue. Court documents indicate it is the home of Olson. Upon entering the home, they found White's body. The documents suggest Olson assaulted White, causing White's death one or two days prior. In the state of Iowa, a first-degree murder conviction carries a life sentence. Worth County man charged with child endangerment after double crashes. This is also written by Lisa Groet. A North Iowa man is facing felony charges after police say he, he was intoxicated with a child in his SUV when he crashed into two other vehicles. Corey David Tangman, age 36, of Manly, was arrested on Thursday on one count of felony child endangerment, as well as one count each of operating under the influence, second offense, and driving while barred, both aggravated misdemeanors. He was also charged with the traffic infractions of open container, failure to obey a traffic signal, and failure to provide proof of insurance. According to court documents, Tangman was driving northbound on Balsam when he failed to stop at a stop sign at the intersection of Highway 9. He then turned around and headed back southbound toward Highway 9 and again failed to stop at the controlled intersection while making a left turn. Authorities say Tangman struck another vehicle while making the turn and fled the scene of the crash. Tangman then traveled east on Highway 9, crossed the center line, and struck a second vehicle head-on. Tangman, who was not wearing a seatbelt, had to be extracted from the vehicle by emergency personnel. The minor in Tangman's vehicle sustained an injury to a finger, while both the Tangman 
and the driver of the second vehicle were taken to the hospital for treatment. The police report indicates that Tangman admitted to consuming alcohol and an open container of alcohol was found in the vehicle. After executing a search warrant to take a blood sample, it was concluded Tangman had a blood alcohol level of .375. Tangman is being held in the Worth County Jail. No trial date has been set. That brings us to an article entitled, Historical Society Heritage Park Announce Restructuring. Executive Director to Oversee Museums and Facilities Tours. This is written by Rob Hillisland of the Summit Tribune. The Winnebago Historical Society and Heritage Park of Northern Iowa have announced a formal restructuring for the organizations. Winnebago Historical Society Board President Dan Davis said the biggest change will be a new Executive Director position for which applicants are currently being sought. He said the Mansion Museum has regularly offered tours, but that has not been the case with museums and facilities at Heritage Park or the historic 150-year-old Trinity Lutheran Church building. Currently, we don't have someone like that, said Davis of the executive director position. We're in the process of transition right now. We have so much to show and no regular system for providing tours. We have a lot of important events out there at Heritage Park. Davis said the position will provide some dedicated, someone dedicated to helping organize and plan events on a regular basis. It will also create opportunities to increase the number of events throughout the year as well as community involvement. For many years, an inconsistent number of volunteers have handled most of the work. The Historical Society Board has historically overseen the entire operation, with volunteer committees and subcommittees making everything happen at Heritage Park and the Historical Society. We hope many committee members will work with the executive director on tours, organization, events, and more, Davis said. There has always been a lot of those people in charge of different things. A State of Iowa grant was received for hiring a a consultant to lead the reorganization process and bring it to fruition. It is meant to elevate the mission of presenting, preserving, and protecting the valuable heritage of the area. For about three months, the boards of the Historical Society and Heritage Park have worked on creating the singular overall structure of the organizations. Waldorf University professor Dr. Kevin Mason guided everyone through the process. There are a number of other similar organizations following a similar format, Davis said, so we're following a proven means of doing this. We will probably be able to qualify for more grants. There are lots of positive things about this. Davis said board members delved into this project throughout October and November. By early December, the new position vacancy was noticed. Once it is filled, the hope is that the executive director and dedicated local volunteers can move forward with more tours and promotions starting in 2024. The estimated start date for the executive director position is early 2024. The Winnebago Historical Society website, https colon slash slash whsiowa.org slash whs slash about slash employment dash opportunity provides a job description and application instructions. Now we'll turn to the opinion page and read another view from the Washington Post entitled, The Dementia Crisis is Here, Needs Training. Assisted living staff are often overworked, poorly paid, miss medicine, ignore alarms. 
The number of Americans over the age of 65 is rising quickly. In the past century, it has grown at nearly five times the rate of the rest of the population and is now approaching 60 million people. That includes about 15.5 million added since the year 2010. This is good news for the widening community of people who are enjoying happy, healthy, golden years. And yet, a rise in older Americans also means a rise in Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. More families are struggling with the challenge of caring for them. Recent years have brought a substantial increase in people with dementia residing in assisted living homes. As the Washington Post investigative series has revealed in an appalling detail, these centers aren't always equipped to provide the special care that people with dementia need. To be sure, assisted living centers were not created as homes for people with dementia or any other serious health problems. Back in the 1980s, when the assisted living concept began, the expectation was that ill elderly went to nursing homes. Assisted living centers were for older people who could manage independently. As the over-65 demographic has ballooned, however, the number of people experiencing dementia has risen, too, to about 7 million as of 2020. The figure could approach 12 million by 2040. Inevitably, people with dementia have become much more prevalent in assisted living centers. About a third of assisted living residents have dementia, according to the Alzheimer's Association. Many are in memory care units, but more can be found in the general assisted living population. Some are just beginning to experience troubling symptoms, and, too often, assisted living cannot provide the special attention they need. The Post reporters found many instances in which assisted living staff members, often overworked and poorly paid, neglected patients, missed giving them their medicines, skipped scheduled bed checks, or ignored alarms. Far worse, they found that in the past five years, some 2,000 residents had been able to walk away from assisted living homes or were left unattended outdoors. This problem, which threatens to worsen, is already widespread enough to call for system-wide solutions. States should require minimum staff levels according to the patient population size. Only 13 states have such rules. More important, assisted living staff need to be trained to understand dementia, including the disorientation, confusion, and behavioral changes it causes, and to work compassionately with residents who have it. The search for a cure will yield results over the long term. In the here and now, there is great urgency to helping the millions already diagnosed with dementia thrive. Society should be equally devoted to ensuring that they get the care, protection, and respect they need. In today's obituaries, we remember Isla M. Bars, age 94, of Garner, who passed away in Des Moines on Wednesday, December the 27th. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024, at Zion Evangelical and Reformed Church. Burial will be at Concord Township Cemetery. Visitation will be held one hour before services at the church on Wednesday. Cataldo Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements, and more information can be found at www.cataldofuneralhome.com. 
We also remember John Henry Alexander, age 77, of Mason City, Iowa, who died December 21, 2023, surrounded by loved ones. Memorial service, 10.30 a.m., January 10th, 2024, Harbor of New Hope Church, 804 North Tyler Avenue, Mason City. Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel will be handling arrangements. Now we'll turn to sports, and first up, we'll talk about what's on TV today. College basketball, men's at 5.30 p.m. on FS1, it's DePaul at UConn. 6 p.m. on ESPN, it's North Carolina at Pittsburgh. ESPN2 at 6 o'clock, it's East Carolina at FAU. And on ESPNU at 6 p.m., it's Toledo at Ohio. At 7.30 p.m. on FS1, it's Butler at St. John's. At 8 p.m. on ESPN, it's Syracuse at Duke. ESPN2's got Charlotte at SMU. ESPNU has UAB at UTSA. And at 9.30 p.m. on FS1, it's New Mexico at Colorado State. Top story on the sports page today is entitled, Another Clark Milestone, Hawkeye Senior Sets Big Ten Assists Record at Home. It's written by John Bonenkamp of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Iowa City. Caitlin Clark has so many awards, she's not sure where all of them are at. She's going to add a couple more commemorative basketballs after the fourth-ranked Iowa woman defeated Minnesota 94-71 to on Saturday. Clark recorded her sixth double-double of the season and 49th of her career with 35 points and 10 assists, and she became the Big Ten's all-time assist leader. She also became the first Division I player, man or woman, to have 3,000-plus points, 900 or more assists, and 800 or more rebounds in a career. And she moved into fifth place all-time on the NCAA Division I career scoring list with 3,149 points. I have a couple of strange units back home my parents put stuff in. Storage units, said Clark, whose 904 assists surpassed Samantha Freilis's 901. The 3,000-point ball is just sitting in our locker room. Sometimes it gets lost in my locker. I don't know. Until I clean it out or until I make one of my teammates clean it out, they got so annoyed. They clean it. They get so annoyed, they clean it for me. It needs to be cleaned, Coach Lisa Bluter quickly added. The record-breaking assist came on a pass that Hannah Stolke, who had 19 points, turned into a layup with 47 seconds left in the third quarter. Caitlin always finds me, Stolke said. All of Clark's milestones, though, are something Bluter has grown to appreciate. I relish it, Bluter said. It's so much fun. I want her to get double-doubles. I want her to break records. To me, it's so much fun to watch her do that. I never get tired of her passing. Clark immediately interrupted. Do you ever get me get tired of me shooting, though, she said, smiling. No, Bluter said, who then smiled as she added, well, sometimes. Clark was good with her shooting in this game, going 13 of 22 from the field, including 8 of 16 on three-pointers. Iowa extended its winning streak to 10 games, the program's longest streak since the 2004-2005 team opened the season with 13 consecutive wins. Amaya Battle had 16 points for Minnesota. Iowa's a great team, and any time you give a great team a little bit, they can go far with it, Battle said. We didn't come out hard, and they took advantage of that. Mara Braun had 15 points, and Sophie Hart added 13 for the Golden Gophers. 
Obviously, Iowa played at a really high level and did good things, Minnesota coach Don Plitzwhite said. They out-competed us early, and, and we dug ourselves a hole. They attacked and got to the rim, and for whatever reason, we didn't help each other a lot. Next up for Iowa, they host Michigan State on Tuesday. Next is a story entitled, Hillman Finding Success at Nyack After Changing Plans. It's written by Nate Thomas of the Globe Gazette. Madison Hillman did not plan on playing basketball at Nyack. The six-foot-two St. Ansgar alum was committed to play basketball at Nebraska Kearney, a Division II school seven hours away from her North Iowa home. But after a late coaching change and the school not offering Hillman's desired radiology program, she set off to find a new school. Hillman decided on Nyack a month before school began and settled in almost immediately with the Trojans. At the midway point of the season, the freshman is averaging 11.4 points and 7.4 rebounds a game. She's also second in the ICCAC in blocked shots. It was definitely stressful and pressuring to pick a school on that timeline, but overall, I am really glad I chose Nyack, Hillman said. From playing AAU my whole life, it has made the transition to college easier. Hillman has been a key part of a young Nyack team that is finding its groove. She was named the ICCAC Player of the Week in November after scoring a career-high 22 points with nine boards against William Penn's junior varsity squad. Hillman also had 17 points, 12 rebounds, 10 blocks, triple-double against Black Hawk College Moline in her second game of the season, too. Not only because she is a great player, but Maddie is an outstanding person, Coach Brad Vaught said. She is a jokester with a fun personality and sense of humor. She is really fun to be around and a great teammate. A unique combination of size and athleticism, Hillman has been a difficult player to match up with on both ends this season. When you add her basketball skill set to her size and athleticism, you have a really special player, Vaught said. Madison arrived at Nyack with a great shot and strong post moves. Not a surprise when you consider what an excellent basketball program St. Ansgar has with Coach Scott Kakeris and Coach Jeff Anderson. At St. Ansgar, Hillman scored over 1,100 points with 800 rebounds. As a senior last year, she averaged 16 points, 12 rebounds, and 4 blocks a game. Hillman is a solid passer, too. The next step for Hillman this season has been working on her offensive game and her jump shot. She has yet to attempt a three-pointer this season. Just expanding my range from the outside is what I have been working on, she said. Vaught has liked what he has seen from Hillman in working to get better, too, not just on the outside shooting, but every aspect of her game. I know that Madison will be an even better post player after this season with the strong worth ethic she has, Vaught said. She will go as far in the game of basketball as she desires. She's a great kid with a great life ahead of her. Hillman was a sought-after player coming out of high school before committing to Nebraska Kearney and eventually Nyack. After a successful first half of the season, the interest is starting to come from all over. Multiple Division I schools, including all four in Iowa, have reached out to Hillman. She has put a hold on all that while she finishes this season and already plans on returning to Nyack next year. I knew the offers were going to come before even coming here, she said. I haven't really thought about the future because I do plan on coming back as of now. 
Part of that, too, is how much Hillman likes the team and Vaught at Nyack right now. The Trojans, Trojans enter the second half of the season with a 10-4 and record and four, fourth in the IACCAC standings. The next few games are winnable before a showdown against currently unbeaten top-ranked Kirkwood. With Nyack starting to find a groove, the team's goal of reaching nationals is starting to come into view. And with a majority of the freshmen already making plans to return next year, there's palpable buzz around the program. You are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we'll move on to the Fort Dodge Messenger. The top story on the Messenger is entitled, Look for the Good in 2024. Fort Dodge Community Sacrifices Time, Possessions, and More to Help Those in Need. It's written by Kelby Wingert. After a year like Fort Dodge had in 2023, it can be hard to be optimistic for 2024. Tragedy abounded with several homicides and accidents over the last 12 months. For many people, when they think of 2023 in Fort Dodge, that's what they'll remember. For me, a journalist who reported on many of these tragedies, and then some, those events will forever have a place in my memory. But so will all the good that happened in Fort Dodge in 2023. When I sat down to write this story, I honestly didn't have to look hard to find people doing good in our communities. At the beginning of the year, Unity Point Health, Trinity Regional Medical Center, surgical nurse Amanda Wilson was contacted by the Be the Match donor registry. She was the match for a young child who needed a bone marrow transplant. After traveling to a hospital in Washington, D.C. to selflessly undergo a medical procedure to donate her bone marrow to a complete stranger, Wilson told the messenger she'd be happy to do it again if she were to match with another patient. Absolutely, I would do it with no hesitation, she said. If it was my kid, I'd want a donor to be as willing as I was. The little bit of inconvenience was nothing compared to what the recipient went through. Every February, Doug Paso of Clare keeps the memories of his niece and nephew alive with the Gene Giraffe Project. Ava and Jackson Paso were each just toddlers when they died from GMI, an inherited disorder that progressively destroys nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord. According to the Genetic and Rare Disease Information Center, fewer than 5,000 people in the U.S. have GMI. After Ava's death in 2012, Doug created the Gene Giraffe Project, a 501c3 charity to raise awareness and funds for children with rare diseases. Possibly the most visible of the Gene Giraffe Project's impacts is seen on Rare Disease Day each year on the last day in February. Doug Passo and his mother, Barb Passo, bring dozens of stuffed animals they've collected over the year through donations to give to patients at the Unity Point Health Fort Dodge Pediatrics Clinic for comfort when they have to visit the doctor. In 2023, the Passos brought 131 stuffed animals to the clinic. They also brought many stuffed animals and burp cloths to the birth center at Trinity Regional Medical Center for staff to give to patients. In September, a newly planted church in town, Ames-based Harvest Vineyard Church, 
organized its second annual We Heart Fort Dodge Day of Service. Dozens of community members, not just church members, spent the day doing a series of service projects across Fort Dodge. The volunteers handed out quarters at local laundromats, cleaned up city recreational trails, served a meal to police officers and fire first responders, gave free snacks to Iowa Central Community College students, and more. We wanted to do this thing because we want to leave our, love our city in a tangible ways, said Reverend Maggie Davis of Harvest Vineyard Church, Fort Dodge. It's just a day of kindness. A couple years ago, Charles Clayton, Director of Athletics for Education and Success, began the Drive Reentry Program for individuals being released from prison to help them get back on their feet and get their lives back on track. DRIVE is an acronym for Determination, Resilience, Initiative, Values, and Encouragement. When you're released, Clayton told the messenger in March, there's a thousand unwritten sentences that you still face. Housing, landlords, getting a job, transportation. I might not be from Fort Dodge. I don't have a ride or a vehicle to take my test in. I don't have a positive network or social group at all. What am I supposed to do to reconnect? You need to belong to something in life. Clayton said that the program helps the recently released take care of those things. A lift to take their driver's exam and a vehicle for the road test. Rides to job interviews. A list of landlords that are not hostile to renting to felons. Some guys just come here to use the gym, he said. It's one guy that needs transportation to a doctor's appointment. We had another one we took to Boone for a custody hearing so he could get his kids back. When Elgona police officer Kevin Cram was killed in the line of duty on September 13, 2023, that pain reverberated across north central and northwest Iowa. I don't think I've ever been more proud to be from Fort Dodge than when word began to spread of all the high school football teams and communities who were coming together to raise funds to help the Cram family through that unspeakable tragedy. It wasn't just Fort Dodge, of course, but it's part of what I think makes the Fort Dodge region so great. In just a few weeks, the Fort Dodge Senior High and St. Edmund football teams raised more than $40,000 through touchdown pledges and other donations, and that's not including private individual donations or the tens of thousands raised by other area teams and communities. Regardless of what the total turns out to be, it says something good about the people of our corner of the world who come together in the face of tragedy, the messenger wrote in a September 30th, 2023 editorial. It also shines a glimmer of light into what must seem like endless darkness for the Cram family. In October, Fort Dodge became the first community in Iowa to install a safe haven baby box. This came after efforts from State Representative Ann Meyer and State Senator Tim Crayenbrink to pass a law through the state legislature to allow for the devices. Prior to that, if a parent wanted to surrender their infant under the safe haven law without fear of prosecution for abandonment, they would have to hand the child to an employee at a hospital, health care facility, or fire station in a face-to-face -face interaction. With the Safe Haven Baby Box now located on the northeast side of the Fort Dodge Fire Department at 1515 Central Avenue, parents who find themselves in a situation where they feel they need to give up their baby can have a layer of anonymity with their sacrifice. 
when a large apartment fire displaced eight families, many of whom lost nearly everything they owned. Within hours, I was seeing posts on different Fort Dodge area social media groups from people asking how they can help. Many of those posts were in a Facebook group called Sharing Kindness Fort Dodge, which was started by Stacy Copping, Coppinger in 2020. In fact, if you want to see people doing good for others in our community on a nearly daily basis, check out the Sharing Kindness Fort Dodge Facebook page. Every Iowan knows that almost nothing is more important during the winter than a warm winter coat, but for many in our community, a warm, well-fitting winter coat can be an expensive luxury. What warms my heart every winter is seeing the various winter coat drives collecting and distributing such a necessity for those in need. In November, Community Health Center of Fort Dodge and Skimcat Motor Company collected hundreds of coats of all sizes to be given out for free during the Coats for Kids drive through distribution at CHC. Roughly 1,000 area kids from infants to high schoolers are able to bundle up this year because of the program. Since 2017, Lynette Nelson and Troy Schroeder have organized the Operation Wham Warm It Forward coat rack outside of Schroeder's memories in Focus Studio at 521 Central Avenue. The coat rack stays outside 24-7. Anyone is welcome to come up and take what they need or hang up coats they wish to donate. Around 150 to 250 coats pass through Operation Warm It Forward each year, Nelson said. Some years the coat rack can begin to look sparse, like it did just a few weeks ago when Katie Fromm and Tammy O'Toole stopped by to fill it up with coats donated by Decker Truck Line Incorporated employees. O'Toole is the Vice President of Administration at Decker, and Fromm is the Communications Coordinator. We definitely haven't had the coat rack as full as we have in the past, she said, but with what Katie and her team just did to get those coats gathered definitely helped us restock it. Shimkar Motor Company and Nestle Purina Pet Care also brought donations collected by their employees, she added. Every year, Nelson also organizes Fort Dodge Santa's Helpers, which is a community effort to help those needing a little extra support over the holiday season. Among other things, they provide a holiday meal and Christmas presents for the residents at Youth Shelter Care of North Central Iowa. Here are some other recent highlights of good from 2023. Holly Jolly Christmas Project provides Christmas tree kits to dozens of low-income families. Local residents and families were adopted for the holidays through various community agencies like Upper Des Moines Opportunity, Inc. and the YWCA of Fort Dodge. Service clubs collected nearly $3,000 in groceries for local food pantries during the shopping spree at Fairway. David Ristow donated $10,000 in honor of his late wife, Liz, Liz, to the Almost Home Humane Society of North Central Iowa to help purchase a transport van for the animals. Fort Dodge Ford Lincoln Toyota fed thousands during its annual Thanksgiving dinner at the dealership. Dennis Hunter donated a 1995 Buick Regal to the United Way of Fort Dodge's Wheels for Work program. Several community cleanup events were held throughout the year by various groups and organizations, and First Baptist Church opened its Salt Center, shining a light together, to provide a cooling center for homeless individuals during the heat of summer and a warming center during the winter. 
None of us know what 2024 has in store for Fort Dodge or the world around us, but may my challenge for everyone is to always look for the good happening around us and to try to be the good that's happening in Fort Dodge. It's not that hard. Now it's time to read the obituaries. We'll start with Veronica N. Avril, who passed away peacefully on December the 28th at the age of 86 in Fort Dodge. Funeral services will be held on Wednesday, January the 3rd at 1.30 p.m. in the chapel at the Marion Home Burial will follow at St. Joseph Cemetery in Duncombe. Visitation will be held Tuesday, January the 2nd from 5 to 7 p.m. at Loftsweiler Funeral Home. Next, we remember Marvin Tripp of Burt. Services will be 10.30 a.m. Thursday at the Divine Mercy Catholic Parish, St. Cecilia Catholic Church in Algona. Visitation will be 4 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday at the Lenz Funeral Home in Algona. Next, Arlene Jacobson of Humboldt passed away December the 29th. Funeral will be at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday, December, uh, Wednesday, January 3rd, St. Olaf Church in Bode, or Bode. Visitation Tuesday from 5 to 7 at Mason Lindhart Humboldt. Next, Steve O'Brien, age 72, of Fort Dodge, passed away on Saturday, December the 30th, 2023, in Mason City. Services are pending. Loftsweiler Funeral Home is serving the family. And Evelyn Newton Hill, age 94, of Britt, passed away Sunday, December the 31st, at her home near Britt. Next, Am Drzymski, age 86, of Fort Dodge, passed away Sunday, December the 17th, at Friendship Haven. Funeral services will be 11.15 a.m. Saturday, January 6th, 2024, at Friendship Haven's Celebration Center. A visitation will be one hour prior. There will be a private burial at Corpus Christi Cemetery. Memorials may be left to Almost Home Animal Shelter of North Central Iowa. Next, Dorothy A. Latimer, age 84, of Pocahontas, passed away on Friday, December the 29th at Acura Healthcare in Pomeroy. Memorial Mass is 2 p.m. Wednesday, January the 3rd, 2024, at Resurrection of Our Lord Catholic Church in Pocahontas with uh, Rever- uh, Father Paul Gwynn and Monsignor Michael Cernet officiating. Burial will be at Calvary Cemetery in Pocahontas, Iowa. Visitation is from 1 to 2 p.m. Wednesday, January the 3rd at the church in Pocahontas. Powers Funeral Home of Pocahontas, Iowa is handling the arrangements. And for online condolences and obituaries, visit www.powersfh.net. Next, Trent E. K., age 40, of Fort Dodge, passed away on Sunday, December the 31st, at Iowa Methodist Medical Center in Des Moines. A celebration of Trent's life will be held on Sunday, January 7th, 2024, from 1 to 4 p.m. at Loftsweiler Funeral Home. And we remember Maggie Lee Norman of Fort Dodge. Services will be held 11 a.m. Friday, January the 5th at the historic Bruce Funeral Home in Fort Dodge with burial at the North Lawn Cemetery. Visitation will be 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday at historic Bruce Funeral Home. And finally, we remember Rachel L. Berg, age 88, formerly of Twin Lakes, who passed away December 
30th at Paula J. Baber Hospice Home in Fort Dodge. Funeral services will be 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January the 4th, 2024 at St. Paul's Lutheran and Presbyterian Church, Rockwell City. Burial will be at Rose Hill Cemetery, Rockwell City. Visitation from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, January the 3rd at Loftsweiler's Palmer and Swank Funeral Home in Rockwell, Rockwell City. Now we'll move to sports. Our story there is entitled Ayala Teske Earned Soldier Salute Championships. The dateline is Coralville. Eight Iowa Hawkeye wrestlers brought home titles at the Soldier's Salute this past weekend at Extreme Arena. Iowa tallied for 251.5 points to win the 2023 team championship. The Hawks won finals matches at every weight class where it had qualifiers, and five Hawkeyes defeated ranked opponents in their title bouts. Three-time Fort Dodge State champion Drake Ayala started session four with a 4-2 decision over seventh-ranked Jorge Volk of Wyoming for his fourth career win over a top-10 opponent and a second such win this season. Ayala, with a record of 9-1, who entered the weekend ranked 14th nationally, also defeated number 20 Patrick McKee of Minnesota 5-4 in the semifinals. Since Ayala's first matches at the beginning of the year, there has been a lot of mat time, said head coach Tom Brands. Earlier in the year, he hadn't had a lot of mat time. You can see he is getting his belief in, hey, I can get to anybody's legs now. Then it's about finishing in situations against guys that are roly-poly and flexible. I think we turned the tables on a guy that a couple of years ago we were close to a lot this time we got the job done. Now we have to be a little bit better next time, have to keep getting better. Ayala continues to build momentum as he prepares for the second half of the season. I'm feeling better than ever physically and mentally, Ayala said. I need to keep rolling and get better every time out. At 141 pounds, Real Woods scored an 8-4 to four decision against number 5 Lachlan McNeil of North Carolina. Woods improved to 26-9 and all-time against ranked foes. Other ranked wins include four-time Fort Dodge State champion and Iowa 133-pounder Brody Teske over 32nd-ranked Jacob Van D of Nebraska and Jared Franick against number 17 Kale Swenson of South Dakota State. Frannick earned the first takedown in sudden victory to win 4-1. to I'm grateful to be healthy and moving forward, Teske said. I'm excited for all the opportunities to come in the second half and the final push of my career. Unattached freshman Gabe Arnold won the championship at his first soldier salute in similar fashion, hoisting number 24 Lennox Wolick of Columbia before returning him to the mat for a 4-1 to victory in extra time. At 165 pounds, Michael Caliendo defeated teammate Patrick Kennedy in an all-Hawkeye final. Caleb Rathjen and Zach Glazer were champions at 149 and 197, respectively. Rathjen made his way through a gauntlet that included wins over teammate and number 7 Victor Vojanovic in the semifinal and unattached Anthony Ferrari in the final. Rathjen showed me that he is pretty determined to be the guy, says Brands. Not just because he went through the tournament and he is the champion, but because of some of the emphasis. 
Iowa returns to competition at Nebraska on January 12th at 6.30 p.m. Crooks powers Cyclones on the road. The dateline is Stillwater, Oklahoma. Iowa State took a conference opening victory over Oklahoma State Saturday afternoon on the road by a score of 76-68. to Iowa State moved to 18-10 and in Big 12 openers under head coach Bill Fennelly and won its seventh straight. After the home team led by as much as seven, Iowa State powered back to hold the lead after the first and second quarters. The Cyclones took the momentum to the third quarter, outscoring Oklahoma State during that stretch 19-9 to take a 12-point lead to the fourth. ISU never relinquished the lead to hand OSU their first loss at home this season. Former Bishop Garrigan star Audie Crooks led with 21 points, going 9 of 14 from the field, while Addie Brown made two Cyclones with 20 points, totaling 20 on 7 of 12 shooting. Ariana Jackson had her first career double-figure performance with 14 points, including four three-pointers and five shots. Isnel Natubu totaled the fourth with 10-plus points, tallying 10 shooting at an efficiency of 83%. Crooks had her 11th straight 10-plus point game and fourth total game this season with 20 or more. The freshman totaled 21 points and 7 rebounds in just 27 minutes of play. Crooks had 13 first-half points, missing only two shots. Dodgers head to West before home double dip. This is written by Dana Becker. The Fort Dodge basketball teams return from the extended holiday break with a busy week of action. The Do- for the Dodger boys, they will play three games over four nights starting Tuesday at Sioux City West. Tip is set for 7 p.m. On Thursday, Fort Dodge hosts Sioux City East in a twin bill, while Mason City visits the Dodger Gym on Friday for another doubleheader. Action begins at 6.15 p.m. those nights. Willie Williams and the FDSH boys are still seeking win number one this year. Cade Westerhoff leads the way at almost 18 points per game with six rebounds as the junior is shooting 50% from the field. Classmate Drake Warland is second at 11 points a night with 4.4 rebounds. Sioux City West is paced by senior Shamar Harrell, who is posting 10 points, while classmate Colin Abelson is second at 9.5. The lone win for the Wolverines came to South Dakota, South Sioux City, out of Nebraska. Sioux City East is led by double-digit scorers Fitzy Grant, Bilal Youssef, and Manasi Kasango Malu. Kasango Malu is also tops on the team at eight rebounds a night. Before the break, the Black Raiders had their five-game win streak snapped by Waukee Northwest 65-55. Their other loss came to Sioux City Heelan 69-65. Friday marks the first of two games between the Dodgers and Mason City, with the other set for the regular season finale. The Mohawks have won each of the last eight meetings. In yesterday's bowl games, the Hawkeyes were defeated by Tennessee 35-0, to and Michigan beat Alabama 27-20 to in the football playoff semifinals. In the other college football playoff semifinal game, Washington defeated Texas 37-31. to That sets up the college football playoff national championship, Washington versus Michigan, 
And that will take place next Monday, January the 8th at 6.30 p.m. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. (laughs) 